Father, I thank you right now in the name of Jesus. I thank you that you have already set the atmosphere, Lord God. I thank you right now, Father, that your word, Father, shall go forth, Father, with ease. I thank you, Father, that it shall, Father, present itself, Father, as seed and hit the hearts of your people, Father, that it may take root, Father, and that the enemy will not be able, Father, to steal, Father, the seed, Father, which goes forth today. I thank you, Father, we build upon that seed, Father, as we study and we pray, we fast, Father, and, Father, as we come to you, Father, hungry and thirsty, Father, for what, Father, you have for us, Father, as your children. And we thank you right now, Father, for being faithful to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so I'm going to go right into the title of the message today. And I hope you're taking notes, because today is very important to take notes today, because it's going to be the beginning of many other messages that will be coming forth out of this will be the foundation. So the title of the message today is The Kingdom Economy of the Spirit versus the World System and the Flesh. I know it's a long title. I know, right? The kingdom economy of the spirit versus the world systems and the flesh. And the reason I wanted to actually teach on this because it's something that not only that I'm experiencing right now, but it's also something that I know that God is trying to do which is to get us off of this system. Because while we are here, we're here with a purpose, but this is not our system. So the emphasis of the Lord today is preparing his people in order to carry his glory. So that is the emphasis, and it should be the emphasis. But currently we have moved, of course, well beyond the gospel that emphasizes just salvation. And I'm gonna kind of slow this down on purpose. So the gospel has been presented to us as the gospel of salvation, meaning that we come, we get saved, and the byproduct of that is that we go to heaven. When there has been no emphasis on actually carrying the glory or the weight of God and carrying his presence as far as doing what God has purposed for us to do. And as well as that, I believe that the Lord has already settled not only within us, but within the church, the issue of that we do not live from a position of fear. So you do not live in dread. You do not live in fear. And you definitely are not living in fear as far as the fear of death. So, because when we do that, it keeps people in bondage. And that's not what God desired for people to be in bondage. He's desired for us to be free, whether that be naturally or spiritually or within our soul. 
So the scriptures say that we're freed from the fear of death, which has held men in bondage all of their lives. Now, follow me because I'm going somewhere because I have to set a precedent and a foundation. So the first scripture we're going to look at is 2 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. And we'll be looking at a set of scriptures that let us know that we are freed from the fear of death, that we are no longer in bondage. Verse 9 says, for he delivered us, and this is the amplified version, he delivered us and saved us and called us with a holy calling. So there's three things in here. He delivered us from what? The kingdom of darkness, the powers of darkness, from being under that rule. And then he turned around and he saved us. He brought us back into a right standing with the Father. And then on top of that, he, it says that he called us with the holy calling, meaning it was, a, it, as it says here, that it's a consecrated life. It's a life that is set apart, a life of purpose. So it's not a life that just a meaningless life where you just go about and doing anything you want to do, but he set us apart, meaning that we had a purpose. Not because of our own works or because of any personal merit, so we're not on this merit system. We could do nothing to earn this, but because of his own purpose and grace, his amazing undeserved favor, which was granted to us in Christ Jesus, before, I like these linking words, before the world begins. So as we're looking at this, you have to see that this was his plan before, because that's important. So it says before the world began, the eternal ages ago, but now the extraordinary purpose of grace has been fully disclosed and realized by us through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who through his incarnation and earthly ministry abolished death, making it null and void and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. The second scripture is Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. It says, therefore, since these, which is his children, share in flesh and blood, which is the physical nature of mankind, he himself in a similar manner also shared in the same physical nature, but without sin, so that through experiencing death, he might make powerless, meaning ineffective and impotent him who had the power of death that is the devil, and that he might free all those who, who through the haunting fear of death were held in slavery throughout their lives. Just going through these, making a point, just follow through. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 through 55. And when this perishable, 
puts on the imperishable, meaning this body, and this mortal puts on immortality, then the scripture will be fulfilled that says death is swallowed up in victory. Vanquished forever, O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? So even through death, there's victory. Whether it's life or it's death, there's victory. And the last one we'll read is 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14. And it says, now we do not want you to be uninformed, believers, about those who are asleep in death, so that you will not grieve for them as the others do who have no hope beyond this present life. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, as in fact he did, even so God in this same way by raising them from the dead, will bring with him those believers who have fallen asleep in Jesus. So for the majority of our lives, the gospel for so long has been, in fact, a gospel that began to shape religion as an institution, which located what men were afraid of, which was death. And that's why we went through those things. Now, remember in the beginning, I said the gospel for so long has been presented in a way in which when we say even the word saved, it's always linked up or associated with going to heaven. So being that, I was telling you that the religion as an institution located that and the men being f fearful of death, and they link those two up for salvation to mean that, okay, you can, we'll be going to heaven. And that's how the gospel has been presented in the act of fear. So, it discovered that men were also afraid that the afterlife would become quite problematic. And so the early gospel or the gospel in which Peter and Paul actually presented was changed to an emphasis on going to heaven and the church became known as the one who had access to that. So for centuries, the gospel has become a church that emphasizes that you give your life to Christ to be saved so you can go to heaven when you die. And it's like, you, it's like us eating, you know how a loaf of bread looks, us eating a loaf of bread and starting at the, the end of the bread. It's like, what about the middle part? What about the beginning? So we start from the end, but the problem with starting with the end, we start at the end without context. So the gospel simply has been explained as this. God created man, man sinned, God saved him, if man accepts salvation, God will take him to heaven when he dies. That's how it's been presented. So if that were pretty much the, the compendium of the gospel, that it begs the question, why did God create man in the first place? 
if that was the end to the be all, why did God create man in the first place? And a simple solution to that would be what? Don't create man at all. <laughs> if that was the end to be all, just don't create man at all. So the point is that he planned to save him. Remember I said, remember that word before. He planned to save man before he made him. As we may use the term, it's sort of kind of like, always trying to get a, like a natural example, kind of like risk management. So he planned to save man before. So the reason he planned to save man before he made him was that the purpose for which he made him was greater than the risk of saving him. So the purpose was greater than the risk of him saving him. Which means that there was a purpose for making man. So when he was lost, he was saved in order to what? Bring him back and in line with his purpose. So we have made salvation to mean that everywhere the word saved appears in scripture, we make that to mean going to heaven. And that's why you have to rightly divide the word of truth. You have to study the word. And yet not one time contextually within the context of the scripture, is that ever the case? Now, there is nowhere in the context of the scripture, not one single time, that refers to salvation as going to heaven. So it begs the question of where did we get that concept from? How did we get off somewhere? So that isn't to say that we won't ever go to heaven when we die, which is the end of the bread. But God always meant to bring us back to save us from a divergent way. So we may come back to the very purpose for which he made us. So it begs the question again, why did God make us? So what and why was the purpose so important that he would have to come in the form of flesh to pay the price for our sin? So, so now we've begun to address that issue with the focus on the fact that God made man as a son of God. Adam was the son of God and we progress to a description of what a son of God is. I think I have it on the slide. Now, a description of the role of a son as being that which is meant to put the father on display in the earth so that the invisible God might become visible through the agency of his son. And that also includes daughters. Through his son. So, 
Let's look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. This is also in the Amplified. Because I wanted it to magnify some things. It says, For God having spoken to the fathers long ago, in the voices and writings of the prophets, in many separate revelation, each of which set forth a portion of the truth, and in many ways has in the last days spoken with finality to us, the person of one who is by his character and nature, his son, namely Jesus, whom he appointed error and lawful owner of all things through whom also he created the universe. That is the universe as a space and time manner continuum. So the son, remember we talked about the definition. As a son as being that which is meant to put the father on display in the earth so that the invisible God might become visible through the agency of his son. Okay, so verse 3, it says the son is the radiance and only expression of the glory of our awesome God. Reflecting God's Shekinah glory, the light being the brilliant light of the divine and the exact representation and perfect imprint of his father's essence and upholding and maintaining and propelling all things, the entire physical and spiritual universe by his powerful word meaning carrying the universe along to its predetermined goal. So if you're ever thinking about what's holding the universe together, that's what's holding it together. What's holding all the planets and the stars together, that's what's holding it together. Accomplish purification from sins, and then he established our freedom from guilt. He sat down meaning revealing his completed work at the right hand of the majesty on high, revealing his divine authority. Having become as much superior to angels since he has inherited a more excellent and glorious name than they, that is son, the name above all names. And so... What was the purpose for Jesus coming? He, the purpose was that to show the Father, to put the Father on display. So why? Because it says your identity is in the Father. Your purpose is in the Father. Your grace is in the Father, and without that point of reference, you have no identity. And at least the identity that you have is that of an orphan. Because if it is not a father, 
then who are you if you don't have a father? So if the story is not about the father, then who are you but an orphan? A fatherless one, or you must make up an identity to justify your existence. So, when you understand that it's easy enough to see why the father having made a son would choose by all means necessary to come and to save the son. So if the son departs from his father and to restore him, to save him from that, and then he becomes restored to the end that the father himself might be seen through the son when the son is on the earth, so when the son finishes his journey or sojourn on the earth, he will die, right, and go and be with the father is waiting for him and be brought back to where he first began. So, It brings me to the point of us wrestling in our mind about what is happening when we depart from God, when Adam separated himself from God. He continued to be without a clear sense of who he was. So we're going to look at Genesis, Genesis 6, 6 through 10. So you can see this for yourselves. Genesis 6, 6 through 10. Verse 6 says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was the delight to look at and a tree to be desired in order to make one wise and insightful, she took some of the fruit and ate of it, and she also gave some to her husband. It's three, sorry about that. Genesis 3, 6 through 10. Genesis 3, 6 through 10. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to look at and a tree to be desired in order to make one wise and insightful, she took some of its fruit and ate of it and she also gave some to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of the two of them were opened. That is, their awareness increased, and they knew that they were naked. And they fasted fig leaves together and made themselves coverings, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool afternoon breeze of the day. So the man and his wife hid and kept themselves hid from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you walking in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. So beginning with the fact that he hid from God, and then he clothed himself, indicated that he saw himself as no longer as or like his father. But he saw himself as a different being. 
that being that required to be clothed. Until then, he was, he was not clothed, nor was he ashamed, because he understood that in his nature he was like his father. So there was no need to be ashamed. There was no need to hide. He knew who he was. So the next note I have for you is that now it brings us to this fundamental question. What was the original perspective that man had on who he was? How did man see himself before he fell? Because after he fell, he saw himself completely different and his activities that he did when he did fall indicated a rapid and a total departure from the context in which he lived previously. So something changed. And that change was put on display by the twin acts of Adam, number one, hiding himself from his father, and number two, clothing himself. So, we don't have to be real deep <laughs> theologians <laughs> to see that there was a difference and a change that took place that resulted in the separation of Adam from his father because his activities tell you that something was going on in his head then it was obvious that what was going on in his head, why would you hide from somebody? Typically, you hide from somebody because of fear, because of shame. He said, I heard the sound of your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, and I hid. So let's go to 2 Timothy 1 and 7. 2 Timothy 1 and 7. And it says, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Why would he say that? Because sonship was what we lost in the beginning. He was letting you know once you receive the spirit of adoption, the spirit of fear is no longer there. He's not giving you the spirit of fear like Adam had after he fell. And that separation of Adam from his father, which we'll go into that. I don't want to go ahead of myself. We'll go into that. Romans 8 and 15. Romans 8 and 15. It says, so you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father. So now any activity you undertake motivated by fear is different from what God made you to be. Why? Because the nature of God is love and not fear. 
Because the very opposite of love is fear. Because it says what? Perfect love casts out fear. So if he had abided in God, he would have never engaged in the activity motivated by fear. So far enough so that in his fear, his mind changed his own view of himself. And the manifestation of that new perspective on himself with that he would hide from his own father. So when you hide from your own father, you have rejected your father, even though he, he might remain your father as far as you are concerned, but you are still fatherless. So the other activity of clothing himself, because remember he clothed himself, also tells us what perspective he had on his view of himself and how it evolved. So when we walk before God prior to the fall, the Bible says he wore no clothes. He was not ashamed. Fear and shame go hand in hand. So in fact, it's like in direct proximity to one another. When there's one, there's the other. So before he sinned, he was meeting with his father, right? Every day, every cool of the morning. He was never ashamed. Now that he had sinned, he had this meeting to go to. They always met in the morning. But this time, he thought, I don't have nothing to wear. And then he said he was ashamed. So what is my point? My point is that the, his view of himself had changed the morning before. Think about this. Every morning he would enter into the presence of God. Never ever thinking about what he would wear. Because that was not an issue. He had this meeting to go to, and he dreadfully felt like he was underdressed, and he doesn't have a thing to wear. So the point is, is that he saw himself differently. But what was the difference? The day before he comes to his father, like every other day, he comes gladly. He comes without hesitation. But this day, he puts clothes on that tells me that now how he appears was how he saw himself. And that was a different being than the one he was going to meet with every day. He could in the presence of God and was perfectly presentable because what? He was like his father. So when we come to see his father, he was like his father and there was no need for costuming. But on this day, his view of himself changed. And it required him to figure out, what should I wear? So, going somewhere. Matthew 6, 25 through 30. Matthew 6, 25 through 30. 
And it starts off by saying what? That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether I have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they are? Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothes. Yet Solomon, in all of his glory, was not dressed as beautiful as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown in the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So the point is that Adam saw God as a spirit, so we'll get actually into the meat of the message now. Adam saw God as a spirit, and his own spirit already clothed upon with, fret, with flesh, resignated to the presence of God, but now his sin had established a separation between himself and his father, and he no longer saw himself as spirit. He saw himself as the external clothing. And because of that, that was the end of his observation of who he was. The conclusion is that he was different from his father, and that was for the first time. So what did he do? He put clothes on, which meant that he was a spirit, I need you to get this, which meant that he was a spirit who already had clothes on. His clothes was flesh. That's why there was no need to worry about clothes. His clothes was his flesh because he knew he was a spirit. He was first spiritual and then natural. And the natural part of him, he saw as his clothes. But once his eyes became open, that orphan spirit entered, which is what? To care for myself, provide for myself, put on clothes for myself, protect myself, hide from my father, be ashamed, start operating in fear. And that's why the word says that he has not given us that spirit again. He has given us the spirit of adoption back, meaning that that spirit has come back to us so that we would not, what, worry about clothes, worry about provision, because that's the same thing Adam did. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. Ephesians 4, 20 through 24. And it says, but that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature 
and your formal way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature, created to be like God, truly righteous and holy. Pretty much he's telling you, be like Adam was in the beginning. Think of yourself as spirit, and your clothes is your flesh, because we got it backwards. We live in this world, but you got to think we're not of this world. We are first spiritual, and we have to be restored back to that place. So you cannot underestimate how fundamentally different we are if we viewed ourselves first as spirit versus if we view ourselves as flesh when we are born again. So in fact, the need to be born again comes out of the requirement that we be stripped from the mind that sees us as flesh in order to be made again made into a son of God. So let's, we're going to actually go into four scriptures to prove this, that we have to not only understand that we are sons and daughters of God, but we also have to be restored back to a mindset that we are first spiritual and not natural. So Philippians 2 and 5, so we're going to run through these. Philippians 2 and 5, we're actually going to read these together. Philippians 2 and 5 says, let's read this together. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What kind of mind was in Christ Jesus? He thought spiritual before he thought natural. Colossians 3 and 2. Tells us to set your affections on things above, not on things on the earth. Once again, restoring your mind back to you are spiritual. You are not natural. So set your mind on spiritual things. Why does he keep telling us this? <laughs> Because depending on where you started or what you're being taught in God, you can be saved and still be, as we know, carnal-minded. So, yes, can you be a son of God? And, yeah, you can be a son of God and saved and stuff like that. But what about your mindset? What about you maturing in God? What about that stuff? Romans 12 and 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Once again, restore your mind back to spiritual things. Stop looking at things in the natural. Stop looking at what you don't have. 1 Corinthians 2, 13 through 16. 
It says, which things also we speak, not in the words which man wisdoms teach it, but which the Holy Ghost teach it. Comparing what? Spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. Why? <laughs> For they are foolish unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judge all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. For who have known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him, but we have the mind of Christ, which means what? You can be instructed. So if the original purpose of the creation of man was that God had a son, God created a son, when we are saved, we have to be brought back to the place of sonship, and that is not just a declaration of something that we say. I am a son of God. Being a, and I think I have a slide for this also. This is a note. Being a son of God is also to see yourself again as a spirit. It is not only necessary that we understand that we are sons of God, but it's equally necessary that we understand to be placed within the context of us being restored to the understanding that we are also spirit because what happened was consistent with the event of sin. Which means that our identity changed. We changed from being spirit to being flesh. We became preoccupied with preserving the flesh. Remember, hiding and supplying the needs of the flesh. Clothing, our entire culture does it. From, from then on and all the way up until this day, it has become quite a thing that you provide for yourself. So when you are restored to the status of being a son, you also must be restored to the status of being a spirit. And then those two priorities will change from the desire to hide or to protect yourself and the desire to provide for yourself. And with that will come a total cultural change that we are able to enter into a kingdom economy that is completely different from what we are or what we have experienced. Because you see, the, the economy of the world and of the flesh is designed to support provision and protection. But the economy of the spirit, which is the kingdom, is designed to support the representation of the father. Now, in that economy, the Bible says that all things for life and godliness he has given us. Second Peter 1 and 3. He's letting you know that when you are restored, not only to sonship, but when you're restored to you knowing that you are spiritual first, everything else changes because you know where everything is coming from. You're under a whole different economy system. 
Second Peter 1 and 3 says, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness through the knowledge of him that have called us to glory and virtue. So we're reading this backwards. We have been called to holiness, to righteousness, and to carry his glory, to represent the Father on this earth. And how does that happen? He's telling us through the knowledge of who he is. How do you get the knowledge of who he is? By studying who he is, by getting to know who he is. And through that, he said he have given us all things. So there's a total different economy that moves you when you are spiritual. And it makes it possible. It enables your ability to represent the Father. Now, I know this is probably perhaps very uncommon to view the gospel. But you are no longer children. You got to know that. When you were children, the gospel amounted to you being saved and you going to heaven. That's milk stuff. But you are no longer children. 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. <laughs> now, this is, this is Paul. He wanted to come to the Corinthian church and give them this deep revelation of what he had been studying. But he said he decided before he came, he could not do that. Because why? The works of the flesh was manifested. He recognized that they, number one, they wasn't mature. He said, you should be teaching by now. You should be teachers. So he said, you know what? This one I'm going to do. The message that I did have for you, which was going to bless you, which was meat, I can't even teach you that. I got to come to you with milk again. And it says, I, brethren, could not speak unto you unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. For hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are you able. For you are yet carnal. For whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? You walk as if you don't have Christ in you. You walk as if you still belong to that kingdom. You don't walk as one carrying the glory of God. You don't walk as one representing the Father. He says pretty much the works is manifested. It's letting me know where you are. So I can't bring you spiritual things because you're not even spiritually minded. You don't even see yourself as spiritual. Jesus put it this way, John 3, 5 through 7. John 3, 5 through 7. It said, Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, 
he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I say unto thee, ye must be born again. So the next note that I have for you is that we have commonly thought of the born-again experience as being the requirement to go to heaven because if your whole framework of thinking is let's get you saved so you can go to heaven, we stopped with the fact, as the scripture says, that it's necessary to be born again and we do not pursue what happens when you're born again. We know it's necessary for you to be born again, but we have not taught on what happens when you become born again. Because as far as we're concerned, to say to a person, you have to be born again means that you have to go through either like this acceptance of four spiritual laws, <laughs> or some statement of faith, right, that says, I accept the Lord Jesus Christ in my heart to be saved. I accept the Lord over my life. With it, the promise that when we die, we will go to heaven. So we frame the issue of being born again in the terms of going to heaven, whereas biblically, the Bible frames the issue of being born again as a contrast, as you've seen in scripture, between being born of flesh and being born of spirit. And it's say, marvel not, once you're born again, you go to heaven. It said what is born, what is flesh is flesh, what is born of spirit is spirit. So why do you particularly need to be born again of the spirit if the goal is going to heaven? There would be no need to be born again of the spirit. So when you're stuck in this body of flesh, you have to think. And we have to start asking more questions. There's nothing wrong with asking God questions. Because I always will say this. He is obligated as a father to answer you or to get you the answer that you need. We have to start asking questions. Things that we don't understand. We got to go to the Father and say, what did you mean by this? We got to allow the Holy Spirit to help us interpret some of this stuff that we don't understand. So it would seem like the best news for you is to be born again of the Spirit, right? And then have somebody kill you. <laughs> right? Because then there would be no barrier, right? To, be, to go into heaven. So I accepted Lord Jesus Christ in my life. He's Lord over my life. And then boom, just have somebody kill you right there being with the Lord, right? If that was the end to be all. That don't make no sense. But that's where we at though. <laughs> but you're born of the spirit to be reintegrated into the person of God. For it says God is a spirit. And those that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. So we have to be reconnected to a divine purpose, to be restored to a functionality in the economy of the spirit so that you may fulfill your destiny that was worth 
Christ coming in the flesh. There had to be a purpose of him coming and not just so you can go to heaven. So when you walk through that veil of flesh into the spirit, you have to understand there is an entire economy that awaits you, that supports you being in the earth for the purpose of representing your father. You have to know when you start carrying the glory of God and you start seeking the kingdom and you seek his righteousness, you got to understand that that economy supports you. It's going to support you, but you got to change your mind to think spiritual. You have to set your mind in order to know not only who you are, but what your benefits are. Who goes in to a job without knowing what the benefits are? You're going in like, okay, uh, yeah, you want to hire me, but uh, what's the benefits? Do I get uh, health care? Is there an incentive? Do we get some kind of bonus checks? I mean, you want to know what the benefits are. So the thing is, why is it just good enough for us to be like, oh, I'm saved? Why is that just good enough for us? You should want to know what your benefits are in God. So now in oh, well, Matthew 6 and 33... I had the scripture. I kind of had already went over it, but it says to seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. These are not just words. This is a formula. One of many formulas. I think this one is probably one of my favorites and that um, we will prosper even as our soul prospers. Because a lot of times we just read stuff, we just go through it and read it, which means that, okay, you got to think, is my soul prospering? What am I putting in my soul? Is I'm not prospering because my soul's not prospering, meaning that I got to think about the stuff, what am I putting in me? What am I listening to? What kind of music am I listening to? What am I reading? Am I taking the time to read? Am I reading the word? Because it says, another mathematical formula, I will prosper as my soul prospers. So the more I put the right stuff in my soul, the more stuff just comes to me. So in concluding, I want to give you just a snapshot of something that happens when the economy of the natural is confronted with the economy of the kingdom or the spirit, just to show you what happens and also to whet your appetite for a greater understanding of what it means to be born again of the spirit. And therefore to become spirit, this is from the book of John. John 6, 16 through 21. John 6, 16 through 21. And when evening was now come, his disciples went down unto the sea and entered into a ship. Now, let me back up before I go on. I have to set the stage for this. Now, he just finished feeding 5,000 before this happened. 
with what? Two, two fish and five loaves. Sometimes people are like two loaves and five fish. I wanted to see where y'all at. <laughs> wanted to see where you was at. <laughs> Amen. Y'all good. Y'all good. All right. <laughs> when evening was now come, his disciples went down into the sea and entered into a ship and went over the sea. Now, I need you to get this. This is, this is good stuff right here. And entered into a ship and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was now dark. And Jesus was now, not come, was now coming to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rolled about five and 20 or 30 furlongs, which is probably equivalent to a little bit over three miles. They see Jesus walking on the sea and drawing nigh unto the ship, and they were afraid. But he said unto them, It is I, be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship, and immediately the ship was at the land whether they went. So let's put this into context of that which is born, what we've been talking about, of spirit is spirit. I said that there is an economy, remember, associated with the spirit that will move you into your divine purpose and sustain you in it. And it's different from the economy of the world or the flesh where you toil by the sweat of your brow to maintain yourself in the, this present age as being in the flesh, as being a spirit, there's an economy that is designed to support you as a spirit. So when we step out of that into the flesh, we entered into what? Two different economies. We went into the economy, right, of the sweat of your brow. So we have not known another economy. But when Jesus came, he also saw himself as relating to his father. And this is the economy that you saw him walk in. And that's why he was able to do what he did. He walked in this economy to show us the economy, not only him as a son of God on the earth, but how that economy also operates. That economy supported him as a son Coming from where there's no time, there's no space. So he came into time and space, and the economy still supported him. But here's the thing. In this passage of scripture, we have two economies existing side by side. Jesus and the disciples had set out toward Capernaum from where there were. He had just finished, remember, feeding 5,000 people plus. The people wanted him, remember, to make him king after he did this. So he escaped into the mountains, and his disciples decided to get on the boat. And they started across the Sea of Galilee, and they were rowing across to get to Capernaum. And they were rowing against the wind. 
for some time, it says, but they was making very little progress. So Jesus got on the water and started in the same direction. They had got a head start. He started in the same direction, going toward Capernaum, and his disciples were going, so he was following them, and the wind was pushing them back in spite of all of them. You got to see, this is not one person rowing. We got all of them rowing. So he came, comes up to them after they had been rowing, it says 25 furlong for three miles. They've been rowing, which is the remember, equivalent of a little bit over three miles. And the Bible says he was about to pass them, about to pass them up. <laughs> we got two economies side by side. The one we are familiar with, that is you row against the wind. And you are expecting the wind to push you back, to help you. And we accept this as the norm. Like, this is normal. This is, this is what happens. We, then, on top of that, we begin to pray to God to help us with the wind. Which is crazy. Lord, help us with the wind. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> and not to bring us into the economy where the wind is irrelevant. It don't matter. So, so this other was walking and the wind, so, so we got Jesus walking on the water and the wind had no effect on him. I doubted if he was leaning forward or straining against the wind. You know, you can see there's the wind blowing him. He's trying to walk. I doubt if all of that was happening right side by side. The economy of the kingdom so supports the spirit in the world, which they just rowing. They rowing. They rowing. They really think they're doing something, not making no progress. Now, the story is exceedingly powerful because it tells us that those who are in the economy in the boat may experience an infilling of the economy that's walking besides the boat, and it changes our economy. You're rowing and you're sweating and you're making no progress at all. But here's the issue. Which is the prevailing economy? When one economy is superimposing upon the other economy, as long as there remains separate, one may argue that some extraordinary effort might be required to move over into that economy. But that is not what was taken away when he came in the boat with them. But squarely within the same boat exists the twin economies and the question in which one prevails, that's the great economy, and can the people who are overwhelmed with the struggle to survive in one economy when the other is superimposed upon them, can they benefit from that visitation and all your questions become answered once you enter into that economy or realize what you have. So yes, the scripture says at verse 21, if we go back to verse 21, then they willingly received him into the ship and immediately the ship 
was at the land where they were pretty much going. In verse 21, immediately the ship was at the land where they were trying to go all along. I'll close by telling you this. God means to open up now the very thing that just that your father spoke to you about what he said in affirming you that we are now in a place and God has brought us here in which we are to get off of this economy. And I feel that so much now more than ever. I'm talking to so many people says, I don't know what to do. You know, I, I feel God pulling on my heart to do this, but I got to pay my bills and um, I need to do this and I need to do that. But the thing about it is in one thing that there's a lot of things that, you know, God has taught me and the Holy Spirit has led me to. But it's definitely a lot of things that my husband has taught me. And one of the major things that has been tried and has been true, he said, he always tells me, if you want whatever you're trying to do to prosper, that's all you have to do. Increase your prayer time, increase your fasting time, increase your word time. Make that a priority every single day. And it's, I'm not even going to lie to you. I'm not, I, don't, I don't sell dreams. Is it hard? Yes, it's hard. Because the more things you got to do, the more distractions that you come, but it's also a thing of you have to set your mind. You've got to know that it's one of those things that it's not all these things and then, okay, I'm trying to put a fit God inside of that. It's God then fit everything else inside of it. Because that tells you where you are mentally with your mind. Will you get off of this system? Yes, you'll get off this. But we have to become more spiritually minded. We have to get to a place where we're actually going to God for blueprints. The Bible says that he has given us power to gain wealth. You having a wealth issue? Start going before God, asking him for the blueprints, asking him what he created you for, asking him what is your purpose. Start recognizing in recognizing what God is trying to do. Start trying to be more spiritually minded. Because a lot of times, like I say, there's so, many, there's so many distractions that come along our day. And a lot of times we're not able to feel the presence of God till we'll come here. And that should not be. Because God is always talking. He's always talking. Whether you're sleeping or whether you're walking around. And a lot of times, you know, if he hasn't gotten you through the day, he's going to get you when you're sleeping. But he's going to get the message to you because the thing about his day, he could have told you while you were praying or while you were fasting or while you was in the word what he wanted to tell you that day. But guess what? You might have been too busy. You might have been consumed with worry. You might have been consumed with doubt. You might have been consumed with things in your past. You might have been consumed with just weights, being tired from work, and you can't hear him. And so when you finally go to sleep, you wake up, you're like, God, I had about six dreams. Really? <laughs> Did you really have about six dreams? You didn't really have to have six dreams. You know that, right? But God is still trying to get his message through to you. But it was the only time that your flesh is now asleep and your spirit is woke. Because the spirit never goes to sleep. So it's like, okay, now I finally got to the point where the flesh is now, and I, I can talk to your spirit. 
Look, I'm look. I throw myself in there too. We'll be having about eight. I was like, yeah, eight dreams. I was busy that day. <laughs> about eight of them. I'm like, Lord, like, how do you even remember all of those dreams? <laughs> so look, I throw myself in there too. We get so busy. It's like, but God could have told you that. Why you was woke? But he going to get it to you. He going to get the message to you. He's going to get the message to his children. So I just pray that, you know, anytime me and my husband do this, we always go back to the house and we say, you know what, we hope that we are helping you. We hope that we are giving you justice. We hope we are not wasting anybody's time. We just want not only ourselves, but we, we start eating it first. We just want everybody to get what God has for you. We want to see you not just free as far as the Bible says as you've been translated over into the kingdom. You've been set free from the powers of darkness, but we really want to see you free. We want to see you free off of that economy. We want to see you with seven streams of income coming in, not even have to worry about that stuff and just focusing on what God designed for you to do. That's how we desire to see you as well as ourselves. So I pray this message blessed you. I pray that it takes you into a study of wanting to know what is yours and what God has for you. Amen? Amen. <laughs> Amen. <laughs>